This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 9.36 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wang Xiaoning and Mark Tan. It is Friday, the 11th of August. And this is WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. So today's edition is going to be a bit of a palate cleanser if you're tired of the non-stop coverage of state elections, which we here on The Morning Run are quite guilty of. We're going to give you a breather and uh, this half hour we're going to look at all the other headlines that have been making news around the world and other stories here in Malaysia that maybe you didn't pay as much attention to because we're all looking at state elections. So let's start with uh, one of our favorite uh, topics or one of our favorite trends to watch and that's really about US and China geopolitical tensions because there were certainly developments on this front this week. So arguably the biggest news from the US is when President Joe Biden finally signed an executive order aimed at regulating US tech investment into China. Now, this new measure targets investments in semiconductors, microelectronics, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence capabilities, which is seen to be critical leading-edge technologies that may assist the Chinese government in military surveillance and cyber capabilities. What's interesting is it also bars US citizens and permanent residents from taking part in these so-called prohibited deals. Now, the, what's the intention of it? And it's basically to deny China the know-how market access and other benefits U.S. venture capital and private equity firms bring with their investments. But what's the consequence of this? And as we know, geopolitical tensions between the two countries are already very fraught. Now, is this going to make things even worse is the question I have. Because in the last few weeks, there's been a little bit of defrosting of ties. But as our commentators always remind us, it's like this big block of ice, right, that goes into the freezer comes out for a while and then goes back into the freezer <laughs> and then comes out for the while. So, you know, we're never really sure whether this block of ice is shrinking or actually growing. Um, a lot of questions on that front as well. I'm also curious to see how this is actually going to impact U.S. investment flows into China because I think following the announcement, there's just been a lot of a lot of digestion or indigestion. I think private equity firms, capital venture firms, they're all trying to see how this could impact uh, their business in China. Uh, we've seen some preemptive moves by some of the bigger private equity firms. Uh, I think we saw the Sequoia Group uh, back in June. They carved their China arm away from its US and European operations so that uh, they could, I suppose, protect themselves mm. from rules like this. Uh, but what does it mean for all the other uh, venture cap and private equity players? And, you know, beyond venture cap, the American Semiconductor Industry Association also released a statement yesterday saying that they hope the final rules will allow US chip firms to compete on a level playing field and access key global markets, including China. Now, we all know that the U.S. Treasury Department is giving uh, stakeholders 45 days to write in written public commentary on these new rules that they're formulating. Okay, so the rules are not retro, retroactive. 
apply to only future investments. Now, what is also what is also happening is that Britain and the European Union have signaled their intentions to move along similar lines. And the group of seven advanced economies agreed in June that restrictions on outbound investments should also be part of an overall toolkit. Looks like the world is going to be increasingly divided into two, right? Uh, at the same time, how have the Chinese reacted to this? It's important to to consider that. So a spokesperson for the Chinese Embassy, excuse me, in Washington said that the White House has ignored China's repeated expression of deep concerns about the plan and they have warned that this could affect more than 70,000 US companies that already do business in China, hurting both Chinese and American businesses. I think um, we will, this is one of those hotly contested areas that we're going to see a lot of developments on and it's going to be determinant of what happens way into the future, right? Mm. Because when it comes to high tech, it's not, we're not planning for tomorrow, we're planning for 10 years from now, 20 years from now and um, how this all plays out, uh, that's going to be a big thing. Sorry? And interestingly enough, you know, we all believe that the US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondi is expected to travel to Beijing later this month and, you know, obviously to discuss these trade uh, issues that's happening between Beijing and US. But I also wonder how much of this is so that Biden can play to his domestic audience because the reality is that uh, they're heading for re-elections, right, in a year's time. And if we remember during Trump's first election bid, he actually was on the soapbox talking about US-China quite a bit. And it was very popular with, with his voter base. So is this part of Biden's efforts also to gain support? Uh, you know that Mark was it America first, right? That was the mantra that Trump came up with. MAGA, MAGA. make America great again. Again, yes. Um, so could be a little bit of that. A little bit of that because I think China is one of those issues that uh, I think the US, at least the polit- on the political scene, they're definitely more hawks than doves. But uh, let's take a look at related to this is really China's economy, and this is something that everyone's watching from week to week. It's really been the big story, and it's going to continue to be the big story for as long as China is seeing a slowdown in its economic growth. Correct, because now economists are saying that China is going to struggle with slowing growth and dangerously low inflation. So he's going to face a situation of stagnation rather than stagflation. So new figures released earlier this week show that consumer prices fell by 0.3% in July compared with a year earlier. Now officials were quick to blame the volatile food prices, but the deflationary pressure is more widespread than believed. Okay, so what else is bad news for them? They have seen weak import and export data, which raises questions about the pace of China's post-pandemic recovery. They're also seeing local government debt at extremely high levels. There are also challenges faced in the housing market. We have Evergrande, just to remember that, and Country Gardens, the NICS uh, developer that you need to pay attention to, at one time largest developer in China, heading, well, facing something like $7 billion debt this quarter. Youth unemployment at record levels above 20%. Uh, closely watched as a record of almost 12 million university graduates are expected to enter the Chinese job market this year. So... Not a good place to be in. No, and I think what uh, I was wondering earlier this week when we spoke to Vishnu Varathan of Mizuho Bank was why hasn't Beijing come out with their what bazooka stimulus package to help, uh, you know, uh, how to say, to help stimulate the economy, obviously. Mm. Uh, and he was saying that there are just so many competing um, 
aims or competing things that need to be dealt with. And as you pointed out, uh, we have the problem of the property crisis. You don't want to fuel that property crisis. Yes. Uh, and, and also the fact that uh, the debt levels are split between the federal and the local government levels. And to do something uh, at the federal level could impact the fiscal uh, position of local government. So I think there's just so many competing parts of the puzzle that Beijing needs to consider, which is why we haven't seen those big, bold moves that everyone's anticipating. Okay, so you typically have two weapons you can use when the economy slows down. One, of course, is monetary sti- monetary policy. The other one is fiscal stimulus. Like you say, if we use monetary policy and that is to cut rates aggressively, you might feel another property bubble, which, you know, it, I think fund managers have been talking about this for the last decade, whether it would truly happen. And because state debt is so high, you don't want to encourage people to take on unnecessary debt idea. And then when you talk about fiscal stimulus, China also has this problem of like airports in some third, what do you call it, third tier cities which are like empty and highways leading nowhere and then you get memories of Japan come flooding back uh, from the 80s where they built roads to nowhere. So it's that balance, right? That And also the China, they're really focused on this new new growth areas like ESG where perhaps the quantum of investing isn't as much as it, as it, what people are used to and the multiplier effect isn't seen as quickly as, as uh, let's say, your typical infrastructure projects. Now, another worrying number that's come up from China, obviously, is the foreign direct investment inflow. Now, it's slowed to less than 4.9 billion US dollars. They're lower since records began 25 years ago. And these are figures published by the China State Administration of Foreign Exchange. Um, so definitely not a very pretty picture for China and everybody's wondering when is the magic coming back. But back to your point, a lot of people are starting to draw parallels between China and Japan, what Japan suffered in the late 80s and 90s. And a lot of it goes back to the fact that China is now facing the negative population growth. Young people are not getting married. They're not buying properties. They're not having children. So it's, it's definitely a change of demographic cycle for this country. All right. We will be talking more about this for sure. But let's uh, turn our attention to something else that's not quite working, and that is uh, WeWork. WeWork shares approached zero on Wednesday after the one-time startup Darling warned that it could actually go bankrupt in a stunning reversal of fortune for a company that was once privately valued at $47 billion US dollars. Now, the SoftBank company has been turmoil ever since its plans to go public in 2019 imploded after investors recall at its hefty losses, corporate governance lapses, and the management style of then-founder CEO Adam Newman. Now, WeWork Worlds did not abate in subsequent years. It finally managed to go public in 2021 at a much reduced valuation, but it has never turned a profit. Okay, so the stock is down 87% on a year-to-date basis. Yes, it did get close perilously close to zero. Last night, it did close at 1.8 US cents, uh, up 43% on a year-to-date, on just an overnight basis. Now, does the street like this name, do you think a rescue plan can be implemented? Or is this a business where people, investors were confused? Did you originally value it as a technology company when actually in reality it was a property company? Was there a mismatch? And yes, because they took long-term leases and rented it out on a short term and if everybody isn't using your WeWork space what does this mean because you're still lumped with these long leases that you have to pay guess what there's hardly anybody that covers no this coverage, stock I'm um, really... well three names and all have a hole on it uh, is SoftBank going to dump more money into this to rescue the company is the question I have because they already sunk in 10 billion US dollars to keep this company afloat and for its listing
Now I had a chance to talk to David Snyder, who's the CEO and CEO of Capital Pacific Oak US Real. And they have got a multiple of 13 assets in the US, right? So in my conversation, he was talking about the fact that New York and San Francisco office vacancies around 20 to 30%. And there is a certain migration that's happening over the US where US tech companies and startups are migrating out of the big gateway cities and into the smaller cities like Austin, Atlanta, and Denver. So if WeWork's properties are located in cities like New York and San Francisco, they definitely have an office vacancy issue there. All right. Well, we'll be watching whatever headlines come out with WeWork. It is 9.47 a.m. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more stories from the week that are not related to state election politics. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show every Friday. It's 9.49 a.m. on Friday, the 11th of August. It's the eve of state elections, but this WTF, we are not talking about state elections. We're talking about everything but. Uh, So we are turning our attention to some policy announcements that were made this week regarding our education system. Firstly, uh, related to the introduction of a special type of school for children from poor families to ensure that they're not left behind in their studies. However, the special school initiative is not without its detractors. Some quarters, including academicians, have raised concerns over the rationale and mechanism for its implementation, and they fear that it could start the creation of a new social stratification that the government should focus on initiatives to improve and upgrade the existing dilapidated schools. I am also, I mean, personally, I wonder why. Would this really help these poor students to be put all together? Won't there be some form of social stigma, uh, especially if you tell people, I come from this schola something, something, and people go, hey, isn't that the poor people's school? It's not a nice association. So should the money that we are going to spend on these poor schools, or I'm going to call them poor schools in inverted commas, right? Um, should they be better spent in, let's say, helping these students you know, in terms of whether it's like textbooks, access to to extra teaching, uh, nutrition, could could money be better spent in those ways rather than creating a separate school? And I think another possibility somebody, uh, one of the academics mentioned is maybe for, for students who are really facing financial hardships, offering them the option of boarding schools, which in Malaysia we already have. We have more than a thousand boarding schools. So I don't think we have a lot of information as Mm. to what this policy will actually look like. I think we have that announcement by Prime Minister Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim that they want to introduce this special model um, for the hardcore poor to uh, enable access to education for poor students. They're still looking at where they'd want to construct these kind of schools. But I think there really has to be very clear um, an understanding of what the purpose Mm. of this kind of initiative is, what are we looking, what's the aim? What's the objective, right? What's the objective and, and how much really you're planning to invest in it? Because like you said, Shaunyang, I think there are other options that could be considered if we want to improve access to education for the poor. And don't forget, the poor aren't just located in one place. No. They're it, everywhere. You know, exactly. Yeah. So I how- mean, in certain affluent neighbourhoods, they exist, right? Uh, it's just about being able to allow children to have equal access to education. And for some which have... Um, you know, financial problems, whether we need to raise the bar for them, helping them cross over that bar, actually. That's the criteria. I mean, it's great that they understand we need more resources to tackle this, but I suppose it's the how as well in Mm. terms of how these resources should be allocated and it's really the establishment of a specific school the way to do it. Yeah, and I think definitely more engagement with all stakeholders is necessary before they actually announce it as policy.
Correct. And this also comes in the back of the news where there's been discussions to also make secondary school mandatory. Now, we all know that the education blueprint will expire in 2025. So it's good to see ideas like this come up. But I think, Charles, as you mentioned, right, we need to look at this in terms of a holistic picture and make sure the policy and the structures all work together. Now, coincident enough, also, we all know that if you as a parent, you do not send your kids to primary school, you could be fined up to 5,000 ringgit or have six months in jail. So again, is this something that we need to look at? Because I think the key issue is students are dropping out. Now, whether it's in primary school or secondary school or during SBM, we all know the numbers are quite frightening. Where even recently, 30,000 SBM students didn't even sit for the exams. And now uh, they are able to sit for it again this year, but only 10,000 have taken up the offer. Yeah, so what's the reason? I think there are multiple reasons, right? We need to understand this. Again, engagement with stakeholders before it becomes policy. But shall we talk about this scout jamboree that happened in South Korea that was pretty, I think there's one word to describe it, disaster. I have to say, I I really felt for all the scouts that had saved their money, that had made such plans and this is considered, I, I'm not sure if I'm calling it right, but it's like the Olympics of the Scouts world, right? Yes. It's like the big event that they all gear towards uh, a congregation of Scouts from all over the world. And it was so, held in South Korea this year. Uh, they were appointed back in 2017. So they also had six years worth of runway planning for this event. But unfortunately, it just, it was, uh, it was that... Uh, Disaster. <laughs> it's a disaster, right? Because you've got sanitation problems, long lines for showers, resource management, apparently toilets were overflowing with <clears throat> and the lack of soap and toilet paper. It was just so hot, people were fainting. So why wasn't it well planned? Apparently a lot of the money was not really spent in terms of facilities. Dang, dang, dang. It was actually spent on these officials going on little tours to figure out how to run a scout jamboree, which they didn't know how to do. So it was a real, how to say, I think in South Korea, there's a lot of um, soul searching, I think, just into why this was so poorly planned. But I have to say, it wasn't just the poor planning that stymied them. It was the fact that I think the weather also just threw so many curveballs. I mean, who would have thought that there would be a heat wave in the area where this uh, Scouts Jamboree was being held? Who would have thought that uh, it would have to be called off due to a typhoon that was coming into the area? So I I think it is also an example of the way erratic weather patterns as a result of climate change are going to create these types of uncertain or unpredictable uh, events. And, and that's something that we really are going to have to start factoring in moving forward. Well, hopefully the K-Pod concert that's been organised tonight for these young scouts will help placate and make up for the whole situation. So together with this K-Pod concert, there are 20 pop acts that will be including New Jeans and Itzy. And Do you know who they are, Mark? Because uh, I don't. The young girls... <laughs> Obviously, I think they're just young girls. And obviously, to your point, Shaoning, they have added in 30 additional mobile restrooms to make sure and 200 sanitary workers to make sure all these things are well taken care of this time around. I mean, okay, that's uh, some consolation, but I really do hope that there is uh, more investigation and more reports and more transparency on what tra on what happened so that this can be avoid avoided for the next um, jamboree, whenever that is, wherever that is. I think no one wants to see this repeat itself again. Um, all right. Uh, in Well, before we forget, 
do watch the Women's World Cup. It is happening. So if you're really tired of politics, although we are going to be around to keep you company, you want a bit of respite. You want to see the best footballers in the world. It's a lot of good matches are happening over this weekend. The quarterfinals are taking place, uh, of course, going on in Australia and New Zealand. So far, the quarterfinals, Spain versus Netherlands, Japan versus Sweden. We have Australia versus France. And then England versus Colombia. Choose your favourite team. See who will get into the finals. I have super enjoyed watching the Women's World Cup matches. Um, I think the matchups are incredible. And it's so wonderful to see uh, Japan, for example, make it to the quarterfinals. Countries like Colombia go up. And I think there's just been so many really inspiring stories from this uh, that I hope get a lot more attention, uh, even amidst the whole state election business. And I know we said no politics on WTF, but we do have to leave you with this message. It's election time again. State elections are happening this weekend on Saturday, the 12th of August. Now, six states in play and thousands of Malaysians heading to the polls once again to choose their local representatives. You can stay up to date with what's happening too. Just tune in to our PRN 2023 coverage for all the latest news and commentary alongside our panel of experts. Listen live or watch us on BFM YouTube channel. Remember, that's 6pm tomorrow, the 12th of August. And that is all the time we have for WTF today. We have the 10am News Bulletin coming up next and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.